happy Wednesday, folks. We have shifted the release of the podcast episodes from Friday to Wednesday. So, yeah, the podcasts are now out on Wednesday. My guest this week, wow, Michael the Count Bisping, a UFC Hall of Famer, an iconic name in mixed martial arts, the very definition of resilience. What a career that man has had. He's beaten some of the greats. Anderson Silva, Luke Rockhold, Dan Henderson. The list goes on. Unbelievable guest. And what a chat it was. You know, we talk about his his beginnings in MMA in England, in, in Manchester where he grew up. How he got to the UFC, the ultimate fighter. His rivalries with Dan Henderson, Luke Rockhold his eye injury as well which is you know it's it's amazing <laughs> incredible how nobody really knew about that and he kind of revealed it towards the end of his career that he was he was pretty much fighting with one eye and he won the UFC middleweight championship fighting like pretty much with one eye just an amazing story an incredible fighter a warrior and a great guy too as well really nice guy down to earth just i enjoyed this chat so much we had great fun this is the al foreign podcast sponsored by betfred and produced by feeding night episode eight michael the count bisping enjoy folks game on get 30 pounds and free bets from betfred when you sign up and stake a tenner football racing rugby boxing Betfred have markets available on all of the biggest matches, races, fights and more. Download the Betfred app from the App Store or Google Play Store or sign up through betfred.com. Game on. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. UK and Northern Ireland only. First sports bet of £10 and over in one transaction. Settled in 60 days. Odds evens. Brackets 2.0 and over. £30 free bet paid within 10 hours of bet settlement. 7 day expiry. Payment restrictions apply. SMS validation may be required. Full terms and conditions apply. Please gamble responsibly. Michael Bisping, welcome to the podcast, pal. Thank you so much for coming on. This this is a huge one. This is a big one for me. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's my pleasure, Al. As I just told you off air a second ago, I've uh, I followed your work for a long time, mate. So when you reached out and asked me to be on, I'm like, yeah, no brainer, <laughs> mate. You're a great guy. You're fucking hilarious. And uh, it is a pleasure to talk to you, my friend. Ah, uh, thank you, pal. Honestly, thank you. Yeah, it's the MMA world has been viewing my work ever since, I suppose, 2015, 2016, when I started doing the, the McGregor impression. And it just kind of, it just kind of went up from there. It yeah, that's crazy. it. No, they, they, you heard you do the, the McGregor, which is spot, spot on, absolutely <laughs> spot on. But then obviously you do many, many more than that. So uh, I'm hoping you go into a few of those whilst we're, uh, worry, mate. Whilst we're chatting worry. away, mate. <laughs> Don't worry. You, you can, you, listen, you can hit me with whatever one. You know, at any time during during this chat, don't worry. <laughs> okay, okay, no worries, no worries. All right, let's do it. <laughs> I just want to start off like your early life. There's a lot of history behind your family. Um, your grandfather was a, a Polish. He was a count from Poland, and he flee. He he had to flee the country, obviously, before the German invasion, and they they, they fled to the UK. So there was a lot of history in your family, which. I think it's really interesting. And of course, um, your mother's Irish. I'm Irish, which is a great thing as well. So 
Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's funny. Uh, in my book that I released last year, Quitters Never Win, still available. Go and grab yeah. a copy. Yeah. I'm uh, uh, Sunday Times bestseller. I mean, come on. <laughs> but um, no, no. So in the first chapter, it's a, a little bit about my family history. Obviously, yeah. I'm very proud of that. But the funny thing is, and this isn't a knock on Americans, when we did the American version, the American publishers were like, no, we got to get rid of that first chapter. Americans aren't interested in European history. I'm like, what the fuck? It's yeah. a cool story. So, uh, so obviously... For most of the world, which hasn't read the book, uh, and I'll keep this very, very brief. Back in the Middle Ages, like the 1500s or something, mm. as we know, a lot of wars were fought over religion. And um, the bishops' elite soldiers were called the bishops' pings, right? And, mm. and they, they were like their elite soldiers. And then one guy, my great, 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 whatever, grandfather, ancestor, in this uh, battle in the middle of the night, he climbed over, he climbed up a mountain. And then looking down on the other side, he counted how many campfires there were. And based on the number of campfires, he, you know, they, they calculated how many people and things like that, what they needed to do to have a successful attack. Anyway, they, they launched a dawn raid and they won the battle. And the king or whatever the fuck it was at that time gave my ancestor the title of a count and a, and a bunch of land and money and all this type of thing. Wow. So my family were living a fantastic life. And there's actually a book called The History of the Bisping Family. And yeah, they're living like, you know, like nobles or princes or counts or whatever, you know, like bloody royal family oh in mansions God, and yeah. things. But then obviously World War II happened. And if I'm yeah. getting this wrong, apologies to all my family and ancestors, namely mm. my dad that will call me and say, dad, he'll say, oh, fucking hell, son, you got that fucking well wrong. <laughs> and I, But what happened was apparently my family went to sleep and in the morning, the Germans had occupied that territory, lined them all up against the wall, shot them all dead. But my granddad at 15 was on horseback with a shotgun. He fought back. He fled and uh, made it to England. And he had my dad. My dad was in the army and I was raised in a council estate in, in Lancashire. So quite <laughs> a different uh, background for me, but uh, a nice one to the Germans for that. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's mad the way they said to scrap that because that's such an important part of history. It, you know, yeah, I was, I, was a little, I was a little taken back by it, to be honest. Mm. Uh, and then they, they wanted less of that, which I thought was a very cool story and a little bit of history yeah. and a little something for the <clears throat> typical MMA book, right? Because, yeah. you know, MMA books, they want you to go out there and talk about how tough you are and things like that, which I was yeah. trying to avoid. I didn't want it to be a run-of-the-mill thing. And then they were like, yeah, get rid of the history and we want more chapters of you getting into street fights as a kid. And I was like, but that's... <laughs> What I'm trying to steer away from. Yes, of course, yeah. I definitely was that kid. I was that guy. I'm not going to lie. And there's a bit of that in there. But I didn't want to come across like a knucklehead. But that's what they were trying to encourage. But anyway, there you go. Because the American <laughs> uh, version sold nowhere near as the English version. So, uh, yeah, they were wrong in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, you know, the, the, your general start in combat sports. You, like You were training at jiu-jitsu at the age of eight. So it was, it was a, from a very early age. Like martial arts has, has just been in your life pretty much. It's funny because last night my son does Japanese, uh, sorry, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's 10 mm. years old. And I was telling him, uh, I said, you're very lucky, son, because the guy that he trains with is like world renowned. Uh, yeah. I started off in Japanese jiu-jitsu, not Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which mm. is very different. Japanese jiu-jitsu does a bit of everything. In fact, yeah. this could be wrong, but I was always led to believe it was the first ever martial art. And all the other martial arts were kind of taken from them, like karate took the kicks and made them better. Judo took the throws mm. uh, and so on and so forth. Um, so a lot of it was, was, I mean, you know, I mean, you've probably seen traditional martial arts. A lot yes. of it does not work. You know what I mean? So a lot of stuff yeah. that I was doing, it was 
great. It gave me a background and kind of a flavor for it. On, on, so it made me able to learn quicker when I started doing the real stuff when I got older. But 99.9% .9 a lot of the shit I was doing, you would not try in a mixed martial arts fight. But, uh, <laughs> but still, that, yeah, I did start at a very young age. Yeah. I can kind of reveal to people as well, I did Taekwondo. <laughs> Right. Like we all did Taekwondo. Yeah, Taekwondo's great for kids. It shows a lot of flexibility, a lot of kicks and strikes, actually. And you see these days in the UFC, a lot of Taekwondo kicks are coming in fashion now and people using them to, uh, you know, a, a very high level. So yeah, Taekwondo's good. Yeah, it's great. 100%. There's a sense of, for any kind of martial arts, doing it from a young age, you get a sense of discipline in yourself. And as, as you know, as, as a person, I think it's, it is, it's, as mad as it sounds, it's kind of therapeutic in that sense, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and it was really good for me. I mean, as I said before, when I was a kid, you know, I, um, you know, I was kind of, I, I needed some discipline and things like that. And now, listen, I definitely got that at home. My dad was always giving me a hiding, you know, but yeah. uh, going to jujitsu and really um, being passionate about it because I never really tried at school because I was so into martial arts. But as yeah. you say, the discipline, the respect type of thing, you know, and, you know, it's very, very important. It gave me a lot of structure. And as you said, discipline, really the main one. But yeah, so for anybody, and it doesn't matter what the martial art is, whether or not it was useful in a real street fight, just being in that surrounding is fantastic for children. So as I said, my son does jujitsu and he does it at this place now called Tim Green at BJJ. Mm. Prior to that, he was doing it somewhere else. But just being around that environment, being in a dojo, you know, it's just great yeah. for him because there's there's a hierarchy there's the sensei and you do what the fuck you're told you stand in yeah. line you wait your turn you don't talk you watch you you pay respect you know and it's just it's just fantastic for a young child yeah absolutely as well just want to skip to when you were 15 as well yeah i, I hope i'm right in saying this it was knockdown sport budo so this was like an early kind of version of mixed martial arts was it it Yes. Yeah. So, so I used to train with this guy and he was kind of a visionary, to be honest, called Paul Davies. And he had this system yeah. of jujitsu called Juwaru. And actually to contradict what I just said, and this was when I got a bit older, his stuff was very real and very aggressive and very violent, to be honest. Yeah. And as I say, he was a visionary in terms of that. He was always trying to challenge the Gracies and things like that. And he put on this tournament called Knockdown Sport Budo, which was an international tournament. You know, you have several fights in a night. Uh, bare fist, anything goes pretty much. Well, when I say anything goes, kind of like the UFC, anything yeah. goes. Takedown strikes, all the rest of it. But uh, nothing to the face, obviously, because there was no gloves. So mm. I was doing that as a kid against grown men, you know, <laughs> three, four fights in a night. Yeah, and I won a few of those tournaments. And then after that, you know, I was 16, something like that, discovered alcohol and started going out with my friends and chasing women and things like that. And, and this guy was always calling me up saying, Michael, you know, there's an explosion of uh, the UFC. You could be really good at this. And I was like, yeah, go on, jog on. I'm, I'm more interested in hanging out down the pub. So I lost a few years of my life where I just hung around and did nothing. I enjoyed myself. Let's be honest. You know, I enjoyed myself like all young men should do. Yeah. I met my wife. And uh, had children. And then, as I say, I left school at 16. You soon, you soon find out there's not much call for unqualified 16-year-olds on the job place. You know what I'm mm. saying? So it was dead-end job after dead-end job. And don't get me wrong, good, hard-working, honest uh, work, you know. But still, I always wanted more for me yeah. and, more importantly, for my family, for my wife and kids. And mm. I had this job. I was working as an upholsterer. Uh, not as an upholsterer, I was working as a quality control inspector at an upholstering factory. Okay. Basically, I just loaded the fucking wagons. That sounds yeah. very fancy, but I just loaded yeah. the wagons. <laughs> and uh, so we had a lot of time to think. And this guy, Mick, he was my boss. 
And uh, he used to say to me, Michael, you seem like a pretty intelligent lad. Is this what you want to do for the rest of your life? And I'm like, no, is it fuck? He said, well, give it some thought. He said, because you're still young. You can still do whatever you want. Mm. So he really got me thinking. And anyway, after a few days, I went up to him and said, hey, Mick, I said, I've given it some thought. I figured out what I want to do. And he puts his tools down. He walks off. He's like, come on, what is it? And he thought I was going to say, I'm going to go college and this and that. And yeah. I said, I'm going to be a professional fighter. And he was like, oh my God, <laughs> I thought you were fucking smart, you know? But, uh, but yeah, that, that's that. So then I, I tracked down that guy that you say always call me, the guy I told you about that sensei. Mm. And it all kind of went from there, really. Yeah, 100%. And how, sorry, how old were you at that point when you, you made that decision? I was like 22 or 23, around yeah. about that time. Now, of course, you know, I did some kickboxing in my late teens, like 17, yeah. 18, 90. I did a lot of kickboxing then as well. And obviously I had grappling background and the tournaments and stuff that I mentioned. Course, so yeah. I had done a lot of martial arts. And my plan actually was to be a boxer. So, hold on, is it Nigel Ben or Chris Eubank? No, Nigel Ben. Nigel Ben, he Nigel joined ben. the army and got on the boxing team and then came out of the army and turned pro. Obviously, well, not obviously, you don't know. My dad was in the military and we moved around a lot. And that was my plan. And my dad always said, well, listen, if you join the army and you're good at a sport, you won't, you won't really do much army work. You'll always mm. represent the army at that sport. So I thought, well, fucking hell, this is perfect. I'll join the army. I'll get paid my army wage to train being a boxer. And then after, you know, at the first opportunity, I'll come out and then turn pro. So that was my... Uh, my, my, my big plan, I thought I'd got it all figured yeah. out. So I went into the recruitment office, I signed up, but I'd had a couple of skirmishes with the law when I was a kid. Nothing bad, just getting into scraps, that was it, go figure. Yeah. And they wouldn't fucking have me. Ah. I remember I was at work and I got a phone call, it's a phone call from Michael Bisping. And I'm hmm. like, great, this is it, this is the recruitment office. I mean, anyway, it was my, my then girlfriend, now wife, she's like, Michael, yeah. The army called. They said, no, nah, they won't have your criminal record. You can come back and join the, the logistics at 30, which is basically a, a glorified wagon driver. So at that point, yeah. I was at an all-time low. I was like, even the army won't take me. And I was yeah. like, fuck, man. I've really screwed up my life here. But it was a blessing in disguise because with my martial arts background, doing mixed martial arts made way more sense than trying to become a boxer. So everything happens for a reason, Al. Yes, absolutely, pal. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, you entered the com combat sports world in, in with making your MMA debut in 2004. Um, and you were in Cage Warriors and Cage Rage and you were at, you were at light heavyweight as well. Yes. And you went 10-0 and 0 in the UK. So... You'd made a name for yourself in the US and I mean, you are the man that put kind of the UK MMA on the map. We all know that. And then I'm, I know I'm skipping a bit here, but we get to obviously the ultimate fighter, that infamous season. Um, there was so much going on. I mean, I remember watching it with my mate. Uh, shout out to my mate Chalky. We used to, we, we, we shout out Chalky. <laughs> you love this. Um, <laughs> But we remember just the, the, the intense rivalry between Tito, your coach, and yeah. Ken Shamrock. I mean, what was that like? What was the atmosphere like? It was just yeah. the clips. Are well, it was, well, first of all, for me, I, I come from Clitheroe. It's a tiny little town in Lancashire. Mm. You know, 
I'm on a reality TV show in Las Vegas. You know, it was, but every, every second I loved it. Do you know what I mean? Because I'm like, fuck me. This is where this path is taking me. I'm on a reality TV show in Las Vegas. <laughs> Granted, we had to fight every week. That's That was a little different. But back then, getting into a fight, I did not give a shit. I was a little, I was kind of wild when I was younger. Um, so yeah, there's just the whole experience, you know, living in that house and obviously Tito Ortiz and Ken Shamrock hated each other. So that was, <laughs> it always looked like it was going to kick off and I was dying every for it time. to kick off. Yeah, because <laughs> a bit of drama is awesome, isn't it? You know what I mean? Because as I say, it was great to be there, but then after a while, it does start to get a bit boring. You know, once the novelty wears off, you're like, okay, yeah. I'm fucking trapped in this house. No <laughs> phone, no internet, no books, no nothing, you know, because yeah. they just want drama. So, uh, and a lot of annoying not, fuckers in there as well. <laughs> me, a lot of annoying bastards, I'll tell you that. Jesus Christ, if I could fight half of them, I would have done. But uh, no, no, it was, uh, it was great. It was a good time because, uh, it was just so different for me, you know? Yeah. yeah. And then obviously winning it, winning it, but you know, and there was just, was it Josh Haynes? Was that the name of the guy you beat? Jo yeah, Josh, Josh Haynes was, was the guy in the final, but then the, my main rival was Matt Hamill, to be honest. Yes. He, yes. he was uh, the, the deaf fella and he was a great guy, nice guy, but I was just yeah. such a competitor and he was so good because he was obviously Brit and, and, a lot of like Western Europe, we all struggled with wrestling, you know, mm. we wrestling high school and things like that. So Matt Hamill was a freestyle world champion wrestler and a Greco-Roman freestyle world champion wrestler. So his wrestling ability was off the charts. Yeah. Right? And he would just fucking make a mockery out of everyone in the wrestling side of things. Now, we couldn't mm. punch his way out of a wet paper bag, but he could fucking wrestle like a motherfucker. Yeah. And he started getting really cocky with it, right? And because I was so competitive, that pissed me off. And we did this a few times. But in, in all reality, it's just competitiveness. You know what I mean? I wish him the yeah. best. He was actually a really nice guy. But on, on the show, they edited it up to make it seem like there was like all this bad blood. There wasn't really bad blood, but you know, yeah. with the editing, they're very clever. They're it's got to be that way. Yeah, it's got to yeah, be. You know. I'll, I'll give you a little example. When I went back, because I coached it for two seasons. Yes, on season yes. 14 against uh, when it was Mayhem Miller. He was the other coach. Mm. And there was this, there was a fight, right? And we were the coaches. And one of the, the guy on my team, Diego Brandau, he was called, your, your boy McGregor, yes, smashed yeah, him in Dublin. In Dublin. Yeah. So um, Brandau knocked out, I forget, the, Stephen Siler, it might have been. I forget his name anyway, but Brandau mm. fucking just destroyed this kid in like 10 seconds or something crazy. Yeah. And he was very emotional afterwards. He was upset, you know shedding a few tears and whatnot. And I, I went over to him and I, you know, I gave him a nice chat. I'm like, listen, mate, that guy's a killer. Don't worry about it. You've got a lot of great skills. Mm. You know, this isn't the end of the role for you. And I, you know, give him a little pep talk, mm. but then me and Miller get into an argument after that. Right. And then we start talking shit, whatever. I'm like, fuck you. And it, when they edited it and they showed it on TV, it shows him get knocked out, me walk into the octagon and then start going, fuck you, motherfuckers, to Miller ah, and stuff like no. that. I'm like, you bastards. That is not how that went down <laughs> at all. I went in there. I was like a nice guy. And then eventually it ended up like that. But of course, with the UFC, they want that narrative, right? The British yeah, bad guy. It's, it's, the, the Americans hate the fucking English. You know, they love the Irish. Fuck me, but they hate the English. So they wanted to carry on with that stereotype stereotype you know <laughs> but uh, honestly you know you finish up the ultimate fighter you're you're the winner and you come out and you're you're a light heavyweight and i, I always found this surprising what because you i know a lot of people gave you advice to move down to middleweight but you went on a you know a three fight win streak mm. in the ufc obviously you were 10 and 0 as well in light heavyweight in the yep, uk yep. and then the loss to Rashad Evans, and then you kind of went down to middleweight. What? Why did you make that decision? And 
Yeah, so I was with this team at the time that didn't know what, what the fuck they were doing, to be honest. They were making mm. it up as they went along. And I, even though I did a bit of martial arts and things, I wasn't necessarily what you'd consider to be an athlete. You know, mm. in fact, I was never an athlete at school. I had two left feet. I was pretty good at rugby. But outside of that, I, 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 was, I was a shit athlete. I was too, I was, you know. Anyway, so there you go. So, yeah. um, sorry, what was the question again? I've, I've lost it was the, <laughs> It was, what, why, why did you make that? Oh, oh, I went down to light heavyweight. Yeah. So anyway, so I was never really that athletic, but I knew how to fight and I did like yeah. to fight. Anyway, so I was, I was fighting Rashad Evans, obviously went in to be the world champion. His fight after yeah. that, he knocked out Rashad. Sorry, Chuck Liddell. We were in uh, Newark, New Jersey which is a shithole, by the way. When I first got there, all of a sudden, this big banner outside my hotel, please help stop the killings. I was like, holy fuck. Oh, no. <laughs> we're not in Clitheroe now. <laughs> anyway, and I never cut weight. I was able to just walk on the scales at 205 pounds because mm. I was a small, light heavyweight. And Rashad Evans, on the day of the weighing, he was in the sauna trying to kill himself, probably trying to cut like 15 pounds. Yeah. And I was sat with his team that I was with in, in a Chinese restaurant, eating Chinese food and drinking Sprite. You know what I mean? And then afterwards, when I lost the fight, I thought of that and I thought, well, I'm not really making the sacrifices to yeah. be the best fighter that I can be. So I thought, okay, all right, that, 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 that does it. I'll move down a weight class to guys, what I thought would be more my size. Yeah. But the middleweights are all big as well. So, you know, that was a bit of a miscalculation. Yeah, but, I, I was looking know. for easy opponents. I was like, no. what's this shit? I said, he's fucking massive. I'm going back to 205. <laughs> Listen, you gave in to the advice and, and in the long run, we'll, we'll get to that later on but in the long run it, it was it was well worth it you moved down to middleweight you beat chris laban in the in your this is your first main event fight i believe at ufc 89 in birmingham Correct. a homecoming one yep. one of the first kind of homecoming fights and you know there was a lot of momentum at that point obviously mm-hmm. and then obviously you know we get to ufc 100 come up against dan henderson i've heard about how you felt after that knockout you, you, you know, do you want to talk, talk us through it? What, what yeah, was- yeah, yeah, no. So, so listen, I mean, you know, he beat me fair and square mm. and a, a lot of people, they, they, I mean, that gif of me getting starched at UFC 100 follows me everywhere, you know, mm. and anytime, like if I'm arguing with somebody on Twitter or whatever, boom, there it is. They just send me that all the time. Or if yeah. I say something that somebody doesn't like when I'm commentating now, my uh, DM inbox is full of that gif of me lying there unconscious Still. or whatever. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. They're cruel, <laughs> yeah. man. But, yeah. but it doesn't bother me. Honestly, it really does. It. It's, it's part of my journey. And, and yeah. it sounds like a cliche because they always say you learn more from your losses than what you do, your victories. And it's absolutely true. And if, and that fight taught me a lot of lessons. But I remember, well, I don't really remember. I went out there for the fight, obviously. And I, I got bingo. I was out cold. And um, I was backstage. I was in my locker room. Mm. And I had no idea what had happened. I just yeah. couldn't piece it all together. And I'm saying to my manager, saying, I say, hold on a minute. I'm not fighting for three months. Yeah. He said, no, Michael, you fought tonight. I'm like, but I'm not meant to fight for three months. What, did I step in at the last minute? He's like, oh, fuck me, Michael. Yeah. You fought tonight. You got knocked out. You need to go to the hospital and get looked at. I'm like, no, 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 I'm good, I'm good. So I go in the shower. And then a minute later, I pop my head out. I'm like, yo, come here. I said, what's going on? He's like, fuck me, Mike. You've been knocked oh, out. You need to go to the hospital. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. I go back yeah. in the shower. And then a minute later, I come out. I go, yeah, hey, what's going on? 
He's like, Mike, you've been knocked out. You've got to go to the hospital. Anyway, this went on for a few times. And then the UFC forced me in the back of an ambulance. And there's me and Frank Mir in the back of an ambulance, like two sorry bastards. <laughs> He's just been smashed off Brock Lesnar. Yeah. Right? And we're sitting in the back, driving down the Las Vegas Strip. And then I just went, fuck. Oh. And they're like, what, what, what's wrong? I said, do you know before when I said yeah. what happened? <laughs> yeah. I said, it's all come back to me now. I said, I get oh. it. Fuck. I got knocked out. Hey, but that's the game we play, you know? That's the way yeah. it is. 100%. I, I, I always remember Brock Lesnar's post-fight interview in that, in that um, event. It was one of I might fights. go home and hell, I might <laughs> even go home and get on the missus. And I'm going to drink a Coors Light, not a Bud Light, because those cheap fucks don't pay me or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think that's what I think that's why they don't let Brock um, speak in the wrestling because they just don't know what he's gonna oh, say. Oh really? Yeah, yeah I, I don't like, watch wrestling at all. Do you like wrestling? It's very popular. It's very popular. Yeah. Well, Brock, it's it's Brock's big thing, and obviously, yeah, the UFC was also his big thing too. But mm -hmm. he doesn't speak in the wrestling because I think they're kind of afraid he'll say something out of turn. Yeah. Oh, I see. So it's just like the silent assassin, <laughs> yeah. is it? Okay. Yeah. Well, he definitely speaks his mind. So good for him. Yeah, one percent. You, you go through kind of a phase of there's a, there's a couple of losses, there's a couple of wins after the Dan Henderson fight, and obviously, you know the the fight against Belfort. And I know mm -hmm. you've no respect for him whatsoever. And it's, yeah, I think you're I right in that assessment. You know, with, yeah. So 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 yeah. I mean, obviously, he has a very long history with performance enhancing yeah. drugs, and 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 in a roundabout way, that brings me back to Dan Henderson as well, because mm. at the time in mixed martial arts, and I'm just going back to UFC 100 for a second, yeah. and that's why I still have a little bit of animosity, but not really towards Dan Henderson, but a little bit. I don't give a fuck about the follow up punch. I don't give a fuck that he knocked me out. Yeah. That's all fair and fair in love and war. That's what we sign up for. You know mm. what I mean? So so God bless him. Good for him. But I wasn't aware that he was on steroids, and at that time, and it wasn't really his fault mm. not his fault but there was a there was a loophole that said if you went to a doctor and you just said listen my testosterone is low they will give you testosterone replacement therapy trt and mm. like if i go out and have a night a really hard training session your testosterone naturally will be lower so if they test you it'll come in low yeah. also if you take steroids it'll fuck up your natural production of testosterone so if you do tons of steroids which i've never done in my life mm. uh, then your natural production is lower then you go see a doctor and then they give you a script for more testosterone. You're just getting rewarded basically for taking steroids in the past. So he was uh, on testosterone replacement therapy. He was the first ever one to, to have that. I was totally unaware of it. Wasn't told about it whatsoever. Mm. Of course, you know, he went on, he went from be being called decision Dan Henderson, because that was his nickname back in the day mm. to, uh, you know, this fucking devastating knockout artist that he never used to be. But all of a sudden he's knocking everyone out with one punch. So, and of course, Vito Belfort, similar thing. You know, he, 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 by the way, these guys have tremendous skills. You know, I'm, I'm not discrediting them as yeah. fighters. I'm just saying because of the, the extra enhancement that they had. You know, I didn't really have uh, too much respect for that. At the end of the day, you know, I, I believe there's a certain code in combat, in martial arts, if yes. you're walking out there, you know, it, it's supposed to be, I mean, it's the, the essence of sports, right? Mm. How hard can two men train to become the best version of themselves and make the best man win? Yeah. It's not about who's got the best doctor, who can afford the best steroids and things like that. That's just disgusting. And anyway, Vito Belfort was one of those guys. Yeah. And um, yeah, he kicked me in the head and I ended up losing my eye eventually because of that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, probably I'm a little emotional because of that. But yeah, no, <laughs> Vito Belfort, yeah, he's uh, he's a piece of shit. Yeah. Well, I, I think, and that's why a lot of people have so much respect for you, you know, because 
you're completely completely against that and you fought guys that you know that were essentially cheating you know and, and it's my whole career it's I, I, yeah I, I did i didn't know back then i didn't yeah. know everybody was doing it so in the early days you would do a ufc piss test on the night of the fight mm. on the night of the fight you get a piss test so i you know in my ignorance i thought well we're all being tested so therefore everyone's um Everyone's, you know, playing by the rules. Mm. But of course, now I know, you know, I was ignorant back then, but now I know all that really is, is an IQ test. If you're smart and you have someone that knows the system, you can have it out of your system by fight mm. night. You know what I mean? You can have it aiding you all the way through camp. So therefore you recover better. And, and that's basically what steroids do, right? Yeah. Obviously they make you stronger and things like that, but they make you recover better. So like I'd start my training week on a Monday morning. I'd work my ass off. And by Wednesday, I'm fucked. I used to get out of bed. I'm like, oh, I could hardly walk. Yeah. I'd get to the gym and it'd take me half an hour just to be able to move fluently. But if you're on, if you're on steroids, you're jumping out of bed like you're fucking 18 years old and not, mm. you know, and you feel great. So it gives you the ability to just push more and more, harder and harder. So it really is a big thing. Yeah. No, oh, 100%, man. Look, I, I just come to this now as well. You're off the back of a two-fight win streak. You're, you're well into your UFC career here. And I suppose this, this point it, it comes to is like the twilight end of your career. And it's an unbelievable, it's just an unbelievable two years in your career. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of, um, I had Tony Bellew on a few weeks ago. Oh, nice. Tony Tony's great. Tony's a, just a, an unbelievable guy. And it was like that, you know, the, the end, the tail end of his career was just remarkable. You know, yep. the fights against Hay, yep. beating them. Yeah, he, de Kambu. he definitely went out on a high and with a yeah. bang. Yeah, for sure. And you're, I think you're eerily similar because mm -hmm. you're off the back of a two fight winning streak. And then you come up against arguably, you know, they say one of the, one of the best fighters, one of the best UFC fighters of all time in Anderson Silva. Yeah. And you win that fight in London and it's mm -hmm. just, it's huge from, from then on. How was how how, like fighting him and, and obviously beating someone like him? How was that? You know, yeah, yeah. So obviously, yeah. in between all of that, I mean, as you said, I, I went through a phase. I was winning fights, I was losing some. I'd yeah. win a fight, I'd lose some, you know. And I was fighting good competition, uh, but mm. I was still kind of finding myself. I'd moved out to America at that phase, and I was still trying to find coaches. Yeah. I went through. A, I'm not making excuses, but I went through a little phase where I had some shitty coaches or whatever, you know. But then eventually, I found Jason Perillo, and he's a tremendous coach, and yeah. not just on the physical boxing side of things. More for this, he got my yes. mind right, you know, because it's so important in combat it's number one it's number one yeah. it, it fucking controls everything mm. and i used to think of it as a physical <clears throat> thing you know and i used to i remember early in my career and still to a certain extent even when i was in the ufc before a fight i try and really go to a dark place i try and you know i try and psych myself up you know and to get angry and whatever and i think well i'm a force to reckon with when i lose my shit no one can fuck with me yeah and that might work against 95 percent of the people but against the true elite that ain't going to work. You know, if you're mm. angry or in a frantic state of mind, you're never the best version of yourself. You know, if you're yeah. doing a show or doing a podcast and you're all stressed out, you're going to have a shitty show. If yeah. you're a, uh, a fucking doctor or you're a teacher or whatever, whatever you're doing, if you're stressed out or mad or angry, you're mm. not the best version. And when you're fighting the elite, the best fighters in the world, you've got to be cool, calm, collected, present in the moment, mm. not acting out of emotion and trying to be angry. Yeah. That doesn't work. So Jason Perillo... Uh, you know, I really credit him for working on the mental side of things because the mind controls everything. Simple as that. Yeah, they, these are all, you know, tools that we have, but the mind controls it all. That's the mothership. So yeah. that's going to be correct. So I worked on that for a long time. 
of course, I also uh, I lost vision in my right eye as well after the yeah. Vitor Belfort fight, and so there was an uh, uh, an adjustment period there mm. because and at the time I was keeping that so quiet. I couldn't yeah. talk about it. It was all, but, you know, it was a complete lie. That know, reveal, I, honestly, that reveal was yeah. incredible. Because we get tested all the time on our vision once a year. And then before every fight, you get your vision tested. So it, it was a very, very stressful time. And don't yeah. ask me, because I'm not going to go into details what yes, I did. Yeah, but still, yeah. but, but, you know, but I was able to fight. But I had zero depth perception. And even now, like this empty glass of water, when I go to grab it, and sometimes still to this day, it takes me two or three attempts to grab it because, yeah. you know, if I'm not focusing on it, I don't, you know, I have no depth perception. So I miss. So obviously fighting people like that was very hard, mm. but the brain's an amazing thing. Cause I'd jab and I'd hit fresh air. But once I actually managed to touch a person and get my hands on him, yeah. then I could gauge it from there. And then I start yeah. having success. So, you know, there was definitely an adjustment period and Jason Prillo helped me out. He was always trying to have my lead eye. Sorry, this yeah. one like, like on the on him and things like that. So there was a lot of work we had to do. Yeah. And I knew my career was coming to an end. You know, I knew yeah. that when you've got one fucking eye, the writing's on the wall. So yeah. that's why I started trying to do, you know, I started doing a podcast. I started working on Fox Sports mm. and yeah. things like that and trying to, you know, dip my toes into the acting world and all that. Mm. So just trying to do anything I could whilst I still had the platform. Yeah. Because no because one cares about like that. The well, thank you, Al. Yeah, the fighting era are an, an absolute natural at that, you know. Yeah, because because well, thank you again. But when when you're done, when you're washed up, no one no one's bothered then. So I thought, well, right now I've still got a platform, mm. so I'm going to try and open other doors. And as you said, it all ended up being the best run of my life. I fought Anderson Silva, yeah. and I always wanted to fight Anderson when he was the champ. Yeah, um, I never got a chance to do that. And but still, it was still Anderson Silver. He got beat of Chris Wyman, he beat Nick Diaz, and then mm. I got to fight him. So he was still Anderson that we knew, you know yeah. what I mean? And I looked at that as my world title fight. And I thought yeah. there's a good potential I might never fight again after this fight. So that was the most strict I was in any training yeah. camp. The diet was bang on. And I went to yeah. London, obviously, the nation's capital, O2 Arena. And I was like, this could be my last fight. So mm. that's how I approached it. And I put everything into that. Anyway, I beat him. Mm. Lo and behold, I fucking beat him. And when you beat Anderson Silva, you know, you start getting some uh, some attention. So I, mm. I I was doing a movie with Vin Diesel, Triple X. I was up in Toronto for a few yeah. months. And I was up there. I'd been there for three months. And I was almost finished filming. And I went to a shop to, uh, I was looking for some walkie-talkies from a little lad. I don't know why I wanted to get walkie-talkies. Just when I was a kid, walkie-talkies were cool as fuck. Oh, they were the best. I love walkie yeah, well, this day he's got an iPad, the FaceTime and stuff. I'm like, what the? He FaceTimes his mates. Why am I buying him a fucking walkie-talkie? I got him the walkie-talkie. He's like, yeah, that's great, Dad. Fuck off. As I was looking for those walkie-talkies, Ariel Hawani calls him up and says, hey, Michael, Chris Weidman's out of his rematch with Rockhold. Mm. He said, this is your opportunity right now. Call Dana White. So that's what I did. I messaged Dana. I said, hey, Dana. Uh, and I actually worded it. I said, if none of those two pussies can make it to the octagon and you need another man, I said, you know where I am. And we, we went back and forth. He said, you're great. We love you, Mike. But uh, Jacare's our first option. And I'm like, all right, fair enough, you know. Mm. So I went out that night and I had a few beers with my yeah. mates. And uh, the next morning, I'm walking into the gym, you know, rough as a dog's back ass. And I'm walking in and... Uh, Phone's like, blowing up. <laughs> yeah, phone, bing, 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 bing. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. And I look at it and it was like, oh, congrats on the title fight. I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> Dana White's just been and announced it on Sports Center. I'm like, holy shit. Because I, I still had to finish filming the movie. I had like two days left on set. Then, yeah. So, anyway, does there Dana, you go. Does Dana usually do this? 
<laughs> he, knew, he, knew, he knew I wouldn't say no. He knew I wouldn't say yeah, no. Course, and, yeah. and then, so I was going in there to like have a, like a little weight lift, you know, and sit in the sauna and try and look presentable to yeah. be on set later. And as soon as I found that, I was like, screw the weights. I've got to fucking, I've got to get fit. Well, the first thing I did, I went, went and got on the scale. And I got on the scale and this is like two weeks and two days before the fight. As I say, I haven't been in an MMA gym for months. Mm. And I step on the scale, it's like 215 pounds. I'm like, oh shit, that's 30 pounds. So I throw my backpack on. I just run out and I'm sprinting through the streets yeah. of Toronto, fucking zigzagging past people like I was on the Krypton Factor or something. And then uh, Dana calls me and I'm like, you bastard. I said, thanks for telling me, Dana. And I, I'm so we're, we're, you know, negotiating the fight, if you will, mm. whilst I'm running through the streets of Toronto. Um, <laughs> and then I started having all these negative thoughts and these doubts started creeping in as I was mm. running. I thought, wow, this is just so typical of my career. I've wanted a world title fight my entire life. Mm. And now here we are. I've got one on two weeks' notice. I haven't trained in months. And it's mm. against a guy that fucking choked me out in Sydney a couple of years ago, mm. who's a devastating champion right now. I thought, man, I'm destined to lose this, yeah. you know, and I'm not going to get another shot. So I was, mm. I was feeling pretty down, but I was still running. And I yeah. called Perillo up. I called Jason. And we're chatting away and I was telling him, I said, fuck, man. I said, oh, me and my mouth, I said, I've got a fight in two weeks. And he was like, Michael, he said, how long have you been running? I said, oh, about 45 minutes. He said, how many miles would you say you do? I said, I don't know. I said, did a fair few miles. Mm. He said, well, so you're in shape. I said, yeah, yeah, no, I, I am. Because obviously I'm going to be on set every day. I was starting my day with a run every mm. morning because, you know, I'm, I'm a vain motherfucker. You want to look decent on camera. So yeah. my cardio was there, but not any, anything else. He mm. said, Michael, you just beat Anderson Silva three months ago. He said, you've been training since you were eight fucking years old. He said, you don't need a full training camp. He said, the training's done. And mm. anyway, so he spoke to me and I put that phone down and I, and I felt completely different. I was like, yeah, let's go win a fucking world championship. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's what we did. That's what I, I just want to talk to you about the the build up to that fight as well. He he talked a lot. <laughs> he talked a lot, and he yes, was obviously very confident because of because he he had beaten you maybe a year. Yeah. I think it was a year and a half earlier. Yeah, and let me just give you a quick bit on that. He'd beaten me, and fair enough, he beat me fair and mm. square. But there is a, a caveat to that. We could call it an excuse. Mm. Um, obviously, blinding one eye, right? Yeah. But that was kept under secrets. Right before I left out there to go out to Australia, we were sparring and there was a head clash. I should have always worn headgear, but I always mm. went, hated wearing headgear. And there was a clash of heads and it opened up a cut over my good eye. And I had all stitches right in my good eye, right? Anyway, I was out in Australia and uh, the day of the fight, and again, I was always like dodging past the commissions and the doctors. If I ever saw doctors, I won't fucking go that way. Yeah. You know, out of sight, out of mind, as if that was going to help. But anyway, the day of the fight, I'm walking into the arena and two of the UFC staff, two girls run up. They go, Michael, 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 the doctor needs to see you right now. I'm like, why? He said, it's about your eye. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm oh, fucked. Fuck. Shit, I've been rumbled. And the doctor comes up. I'm like, yes, doc. And I'm shitting it. He says, yeah, we got to take those stitches out, Mike. He said, we can't let you fight with stitches in. I'm like, oh, thank fuck for that. <laughs> so all they wanted to do was take the stitches out of my good eye. I was like, oh my God, I've dodged a bullet again. Yeah. Anyway, in that fight, the first fight, and it sounds like an excuse, but it's true. He fucking headbutts me again, opens up that cut straight away. So yeah. blood was pouring into my good eye. And that's, oh, that's, and I couldn't yeah. see anything. That's completely detrimental. See, I'd, yeah. I'd wipe it and it'd all be like, if you've got like a, a bucket of red paint, put it on a, wind, uh, on a windshield of a car, windscreen, and put the wipers on, right? It was just smeared. So all I would see was red. Oh, and then I'd do that and I could kind of see him again, but then it'd bleed into my eye and I'd have to wipe. So that's what was going on. So yeah. essentially I was half blind, 
And then I'm assuming I got kicked in the head or something. So I got fucking bingo dropped and choked out. Uh, but afterwards, I couldn't say anything because otherwise I'm, I'm grassing myself up. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So I just had to keep my mouth shut. But that fucking stung. But that's why I always wanted to fight him again because I know I, know I could beat this asshole. Yes, yeah. You know what I mean? I know I can beat him. I trained with him before. You know, I'm not, not disrespecting his skills. Tremendous fighter, but I, mm. I, I felt I could beat him. So that was why I put my name in the hat, you know? Yeah. And like, he wasn't really the same after that, after that fight, uh, Rockhold. And I, I think as well, I just think some of the trash talk, I mean, that he, he came up with. I know you're, you're well known for your trash talk and we're going to get to that. But I think he said at one point, he said, yeah, he, he beat Anderson Silva, but Anderson Silva was never on my level. Yeah. Uh, what did you make of that kind of, what did you make of that comment? Because I know, listen, I know you were giving the trash talk to Anderson Silva. That's, that's, that's the business. That's, you know, that's mm. what fighting is for. But what did you make of him when he made that commentary? Like, yeah, I mean, listen, he's, I'm sure he's a great guy. And when you're leading up to a fight, you say all kinds of things. You mm. know what I'm saying? So, so I don't really hold him accountable for anything that he said. But at the moment, yeah. of course, you know, things, whatever he says like that, it stings and you, it gets a yeah. reaction. But as I say, I, I know some of Luke's friends like Daniel Cormier. Yeah. And now Jason Perillo's training him, the bastard. Yeah. I was just looking on Instagram <laughs> this morning, Perillo's training him. So listen, he's a good guy. DC is one of like the, the greatest guys in the sport. And he's yeah. like best friends with Luke Rockhold. So I'm sure if we met under a different scenario, I'm sure he'd be a great guy. You know yeah. what I mean? Of course, but, yeah. But when you're in the same weight class and you're competitors, you talk a bit of shit. So, but God yeah. bless him. But um, yeah, you know, he believed in himself and he was doing what he needed to do to uh, yeah. to just to make himself feel confident. You know, like when yeah. I fought Anderson and I put something on Instagram recently, last week when he fought, I, I put a little thing there because uh, I talked a lot of shit to Anderson as well. But mm. I had to do that because I was always such a fan of Anderson. And if I yeah. allow myself mentally to put him on a pedestal, and, wow, the great Anderson Silva, yeah. well, I'm not going to fight to the best of my ability. Yeah. So I had to do everything I could to strip him of that, of his dignity, of his respect, and and and, and berate him and take away his accomplishments because yeah. I'm, I've got to look at him as just a man, just an average man. Mm. If I'm, Anderson's great, then I'm not going to perform. So I said a lot of things that I didn't mean. So I'm sure some yeah. of the shit that Rockhold said, he didn't necessarily mean. But yeah. one thing he still is, even if I say he's a great guy, he's still a cocky fuck. So, <laughs> you know, he said some shit, you know, and he's going on about being a samurai and I came yeah. out, you know, conceive, believe, achieve. That, you know, that, that haunts him, I'm sure, still to this day. But yeah. uh, that press conference was a good laugh. Because yeah. I won. <laughs> and, and the post, the post fight presser was great as well. <laughs> oh, mate, listen, obviously, I mean, we were in the fight, you know, and I, I felt good. And I, I knew it couldn't go uh, the distance, right? I knew I weren't in shape to go five rounds. So I'm like, I've got to take this fucker out. So normally I'm a bit more strategic in my fights. I should have had no fucking training camps my whole career. Because in that one, I was swinging, you know what I mean? Like proper swinging. Mm. And I clipped him and he went down. I remember I hit him with a left hook and he went down. I was like, oh, holy Because you know, <laughs> as a fighter, when you land a good one, you get the yeah. feedback on your knuckles. You feel mm. it because it goes through the gloves and you feel it on your knuckle. You're like, oh. Yeah. That was a good one. And then I clipped him. I was like, whoa, that felt good. And <laughs> he went down and then he starts getting back. I'm like, no, you fucking don't. Bang. <laughs> he went down again. And then next minute I'm the champ, right? Yeah. So when, uh, <laughs> I, they, they, you know, I'm, I'm having my victory, uh, victory lap. I'm walking around the octagon. I've got my hands in the air. I'm waving mm. at my family and shit like that. And as I walk around, I see Luke Rockhold. So I shake his hand. Hey, Luke you know, all the best. Yeah. And I carried on. It's my moment. I've been dying to be the world champion for a long time. So I'm fucking, I'm having my moment, yeah. as I said. And I ended up doing another lap and I walked past him and I went to shake his hand again. And he goes, I've already shook your hand. 
And I go, oh, really? He goes, yeah. I was like, oh, oh, so you want to be a dickhead? So then I started, you know, I, mate, don't worry about it. I said, you've just been knocked out. I said, you'll come yeah. to in a minute. Don't worry, pal. I said, we're in the octagon. You've just been knocked out, but it's fine. You'll come to. So I was a dick, but he was being a dick first. Mm. So anyway, so then I go and have, uh, you know, you got to do some interviews and shit like that. And then they walk him into the post-fight press conference. By then, I've, I've managed to find a beer somewhere because I'm like, I've just won the belt. Get me a fucking mm. beer. Come on, let's go. I had a couple of whiskeys with Dana and Lorenzo as well. <laughs> and, and then I'm walking into the post-fight press conference and right as I'm walking in, Rockhold saying, that guy's a maggot. He's nothing. I'm going to crush him. I can destroy Bisping, something like that or whatever. And I walked in with my beer and I'm like, are you fucking serious, mate? Have you seen that replay, pal? Have you seen what happened? <laughs> and then obviously it just went on from there. It, yeah. it, it ended up in the toilet. It's kind of regrettable, but it was also a good laugh. Yeah, no, 100%. And uh, just a career defining moment for you. And I, I just, how did you feel like you just said that, you know, you, Anderson Silva was your title shot. That's the way yeah. you kind of felt about it. And, you know, you get the call f- um, from Dana. He says, mm. no, it's Jakari. And then, your phone blows up and you're the middleweight champion. It, it was just, it must it, have been it, an incredible it, moment. It really was. It, and yeah. it was kind of a whirlwind few weeks, you know, and yeah. obviously once the dust settles, then you sit back and you think about it. And it took a while for it to really sink in, to be yeah. honest. And obviously you're happy, you know, you've achieved a lifelong dream. There's all that side of things, but also for, for everybody that supported me, namely my wife, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so I don't know if you have a wife, if you're married or, or, or whatever. Uh, fiance, fiance. Fiance. <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, congrats. Thank you, Pat. And, and you, you know, your significant other always supports you a lot. Yeah. And, and, and back in those days, when I decided to quit work, move away, you know, I was on minimum wage. I'd work my ass off for 200 yeah. quid a week. You know what I mean? Money was tight. But she allowed me to quit work when we were already fucking broke, already in debt. Mm. You know what I mean? Move away to another city in Nottingham, Monday to Friday, train to become a fucking... A mixed martial artist. This is back in 2003 when it wasn't yeah. even really a fucking thing. Do you know what I mean? And I know at that time, a lot of people, some of my friends, because I found out from some other friends, were talking shit behind my back saying, what's he doing? And I understand it, by the way. You're like, yeah. what's he doing? He's got kids. They're fucking broke and he's off chasing his pipe dream. But she yeah. always supported me. She put her own dreams on hold. She was always there for me. Do you know what I mean? And I'll never forget that. And then becoming the champion of the world, it, it was great for me, you know, yeah. for my ego and everything, whatever, but also for her, for my dad, for everyone that supported me, for everyone throughout the world that supported me, uh, came to my fans and showed love and, you know, all that type of thing. So yeah. it was for them, but more my wife to more than anybody. And then, you know, that kid that grew up in Clitheroe always getting in fights. I never thought I'd end up being champion of the fucking world. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah, it, it was yeah. a pretty special moment. And then come, then we get to the homecoming fight where you avenged the loss against Dan Henderson. What was it like coming out to that crowd in the, the MEN arena? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm always surprised why you... Listen, unbelievable song. Um, yeah. Unbelievable yeah. song. But you're a Manchester man. I know. Oh, Stone I get, Roses, the, no Oasis. <laughs> I get it all the time. I get it all the time. So, uh, uh, you know, That's the a DJ, great song. it's a fucking awesome song. Yeah, so, so initially I came out to the Clash London's Calling. Uh, yeah. when I fought in Vegas. And that, that that's a great song. It's a good one. Yeah. And I used that a couple of times early in my career. And then I had a couple of moody ones. I, when I fought Richard Evans, I came out to 
Puff Daddy or P Diddy did like a cover of Limp Biscuits. Uh, what's it? Come to me or something. It's a good song though. Actually, yeah. I came out to that. Took me a while. Anyway, and I was in Manchester when I fought UFC 70 against Elvis Sinisek, and I just went for a walk around Manchester, and I went in HMV. Mm. That shows how long it is because there's no more HMV around. Yeah. But I'm in HMV, and I'm just looking through CDs, like trying to get a bin- bit of inspiration. And I saw the Best of Blur. I was like, Oh fuck, song two. That's a belter. That. Yeah. So I picked that. And then when you walked out into the crowd, you've got 20,000 people and everybody knows that song and the words aren't hard. It's woohoo. Yeah. And when you walk out, 20,000 people going woohoo. And it's yeah. a fucking, the energy's insane. It's and it was great. So from there, I was like, I'm, I'm sticking with that. Yeah. And I'm going off on a tangent here. But uh, UFC 100, as we said, I got knocked out. Yes. Next fight was in Manchester at UFC 105. Mm. And I was like, fuck that song. I've, I walked out to that last time and I got fucking flatlined. Do you know what I mean? So I've got to pick something new. And I was going to come out to Dizzy Rascal Bonkers, which would have been pretty good, actually. But yeah. still, uh, right before I was meant to go out, one of the UFC staff came and said, oh, by the way, uh, message from Dana. You're not coming out to Dizzy Rascal. You're sticking with the Blur song too. I'm like, what the fuck? He says, no, he says, it's all part of the Michael Bisping experience. And it turns out he was fucking right. Do you know what I mean? Because mm. it did, uh, you know, it is a great song. But anyway, back to your initial point. A lot of time, people always say, what the fuck? You're from there, Manchester. Why not Oasis? <laughs> and when I fought Dan Henderson, I was going to come out to Wonderwall. Uh, but, mm. but again, again, I, I didn't, ultimately. <laughs> and obviously, you, you avenged that loss and you, you beat Dan in, in Manchester. And it was a, a, obviously an unbelievable moment for you, the champion, your first defense, and it's it's in your hometown. Like that's yeah. that's, that's That's the peak, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, it really was... Uh, yeah. I mean, to be honest, I reckon the George St. Pierre fight was the peak, but we'll get to that in a yeah, minute, I'm assuming. Yes. But um, yeah, obviously the, the Henderson fight was at 6 a.m. Uh, for, for the U.S. Yes, market. Yes, yeah. And and I thought at that time, and this sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, which I guess I am, but still, I'm, it's more of a thank you. I, I was really worried. I thought nobody's going to buy tickets to a fight at fucking 5.30 yeah. a.m. or whatever it was. And anyway, it sold out in like five minutes flat. And... Uh, I mean, the English, you know, or the British and the Irish. I mean, we yeah. all love a drink, Listen. don't we? And you know yeah. what I mean? And, and the atmosphere in there yeah. at five o'clock in the morning, <laughs> it was fucking wild, mate. It was mental. So but the uh, bad thing was, they were all coming from nightclubs, probably. Too. Oh, yeah. They were hammered. They were absolutely hammered, but they were having a good time. Like, because yeah. some of my mates after the fight, gee, I had to get away from them. They were they were incoherent. They couldn't yeah. speak. They're like, this bit. I'm like, oh shit. I'll talk to you <laughs> later, lads. You know, because they're all hammered. But uh, nah, that was great. That was great. And the fight itself. I mean, obviously Henderson's always dangerous with that big right hand. Yes. And of course, that was the game plan, avoiding the right hand. Yeah. But that's his weapon. And, and you know, I got caught with two big shots. And he opened up this fucking, my face was swollen up like crazy. And then, you know, I won the fight uh, fair and square. You know, I, I, I won most of the rounds, but he had two big moments. But the longer the fight went, that was swelling up like crazy. And in the fifth round, obviously this eye doesn't see. And this is swollen closed. And I, yeah. could, I could only see like a little slit. And, and like if I moved to certain parts, that's the only way I could see him. You know, mm. I was almost fighting blind in that fight in the fifth round. And then afterwards... When I got back to the hotel, it had actually swollen, closed. Mm. And I was in my uh, I was in my bathroom, like trying to take a shower and stuff. And I was almost in tears because I couldn't actually see. There was mm. a small period of time where I couldn't see, you know. So I got some ice in it and stuff and it came down a bit. And, you know, fortunately I could see again, you know. So, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a big moment. 
Build your own unique bets and get the odds instantly with Betfred's Pick Your Punt Builder. Corners, cards, goal scorer and more. They've got them all. Download the Betfred app to build your own unique bets with instant odds. 18 plus BeGambleAware.org. Singles only. Pick Your Punt Builder is available on selected matches at Betfred's discretion. Visit Betfred.com promotions for more information and for full terms and conditions. And that's the end of part one with Michael Bisping, folks. Uh, we have a part two. It was a long enough podcast, so we've split it into two parts. So I will see you on Friday for part two. Please stay tuned. And yes, hope you enjoy it.